welcome to episode 17 of the MMA Rundown. And Weili Zhang has won the UFC title at strawweight. Uh, a lot of other stuff going on. I chose Here Comes the Money, both because of a couple of big things for business for the UFC, but then also the fighter pay thing that was going on with Kung Lee in court. I have a few topics I'll be talking about regarding that. Uh, but for all the topics that we'll be talking about, the first thing we'll talk about is Weili Zhang winning the UFC title in, Chi- in the um, main event of UFC China. We'll look at the rest of the card for UFC China, recap that entire card. Preview UFC 242 coming up next week. It's going to be a really big card. Uh, obviously, Khabib and Rocket Madoff is going to be the main event against Dustin Poirier. We have Paige Van Zant going on Ariel Hawani's show and talking about how she is fighting out her contract and expects to be paid a lot more. Uh, so we'll see whether or not that's actually a fair point that she's making or not. Uh, UFC in-court documents was revealed to be paying around 20% to their athletes. Is that too little, too much? Do we not even know based off of the information we have? Talk about that. There was a video that Luke Thomas put up with Eric Kerner, who is this um, statistics student. A lot of times they put up videos talking about UFC being a monopoly or fighter pay, and they had answered some questions and criticisms, so I'll answer back some of the some of their responses in there. Uh, we have BJ Penn getting in a couple street fights, uh, one of them where he gets knocked on his ass. We have Darren Till and Kelvin Gastelum being scheduled to fight, as well as Carlos Condit and Mickey Gall. Then we have Anthony Rumble Johnson coming back. He says he plans to return in, uh, I believe, March of 2020. John Jones sending out a pretty nice message to Daniel Cormier, even though these two guys hate each other. It was pretty nice to, to see that, so I'll talk about that. And the final thing we'll talk about is a prospect that would likely either be at 135 pounds or 145 pounds, probably 135 pounds in the women's division. Uh, potentially could be one of the top prospects that we've had in a while. Uh, not sure when we're getting her, but she did have an interview talking about when she'll be coming in, so I'll talk about her as well. Uh, but back to the top, we will talk about Weili Zhang, the new UFC strawweight champion. This fight was a very quick fight. Came out with Jessica Andrade just throwing wildly. This was very, very brawl-like from Jessica Andrade. It wasn't the most technical. It was just swinging wild, just moving forward, had her hands down, throwing wide punches. And as she was doing that, Zhang caught her with a huge um, straight right up the middle that rocked her. And while Andrade was rocked, she tried to then clinch up with Weili to sort of get her wits back about her. And in that process, Weili Zhang was extremely impressive in how she was able to handle the Muay Thai clinch from there. Was landing big knees, big elbows, and the elbows looked like they were landing near the back of the head. I think, for the most part, they were legal. Um, so while Andrade was trying to just slow down the fight and be able to get her wits about her, she was just taking shot after shot after shot. Uh, ends up stumbling backwards. Weili follows her, um, just running at her, swinging wildly with her hands down. But at that point, Andrade's just covering up. She's not throwing back. Uh, Zhang drops her, she ends up falling against the fence, and at that point the ref jumps in, and we have a new champion. Obviously nothing wrong with the stoppage. The final stats in this 42-second fight was 29 strikes landed in 42 seconds for Weili Zhang to 4 for Andrade. Uh, So what to make of that fight for Andrade? Uh, Obviously it's not as though people haven't realized that she's not the most technical fighter, but it's very strong. Ran into another fighter who was extremely strong, and in this case was able to be, be more technical than her, and that's what ended up costing her. Uh, in her fight with Joanna Janjacek, she just got outclassed technically. With Rose, she was getting outclassed technically before she was able to land that huge takedown and throw her on her head. Um, and Weili Zhang was able to do the same. Very impressed by Weili Zhang's Muay Thai clinch, though. Uh, not in, just in her ability to control from there, but even when she would have to take like one hand off and throw an elbow, she'd be able to get that clinch back or pull her back in with the other arm and just control her that way. So we've known that Weili's very strong, but for her to do what she did to Jessica Andrade was even more impressive. As far as who she fights next, that remains to be seen. I think depending on how uh, Tatiana Suarez's injury is is um, healing up, that would seem like a fight that would make a lot of sense. But 
part of title fights is who deserves it and part of its timing. So we'll, we'll have to see what, what happens next. But it doesn't look as though Wei Li Zhang took a whole lot of damage here. Uh, another interesting point to bring up, though, is that had the UFC not been making their debut in China, there's a very small chance that Wei Li Zhang would have gotten this title fight, which means that there's a decent chance that you would have someone ranked outside the top five who is good enough to be champion but doesn't get the opportunity just because timing doesn't work out. And that's a fairly common thing. Um, but it's cool to actually have a fight like this happen where you, you really get to see that in action. So you know sometimes, yes, you might have someone who's ranked, who's champion, and you might have someone who's ranked outside the top five or even outside the top ten, but sometimes styles make fights, and there are people who haven't quite earned their title fight yet, quite yet, but are at a level where at, at this moment in time they could potentially be the best person in the world and people won't even realize it. Uh, so one of the topics that I brought up in a different video this week was with Khabib Nurmagomedov and how he sometimes lets people off the hook when he gets really good positions on the ground. And I had mentioned that there were a couple fighters who could potentially make him pay for that, one including Gregor Gillespie. And one of the pushbacks I saw was, well, Gregor's not even a top-ten fighter. Um, but this Wei Li Zhang thing kind of shows that sometimes, even though you're not ranked as high, or you, even though you're not ranked very close to the champion, sometimes styles make fights, and you can have someone who's further back and still capable of getting the win there. That's not to say that Gregor beats Khabib if they fight, but it is just something that's interesting to note. Uh, as far as the rest of the card goes... Uh, a lot of fighters who I wasn't terribly familiar with beforehand and still not super familiar with now, but in the co-main event, we had... So, so in the main event, you had Wei Li Zhang, who is the best women's fighter from China. In the co-main event, you had Li Zhang who is most likely the best male fighter from China. He fought Elizu Zaleski dos Santos, who was ranked number 14 at the time. So a top 15 opponent for him. Real big opportunity for him to get a win and potentially get himself ranked, but even if he doesn't, he, he gets himself pretty close to getting ranked. And... It was a decent back-and-forth fight. Lee Lee dropped him in the first round with a straight right. Uh, looked as though he was on his way to win a decision, and towards the end of the fight was able to drop uh, drop Elizu Capoeira. I'll call him Capoeira for now. He was able to drop Capoeira and finish him from there. Very impressive win because Capoeira is a guy who a lot of people were expecting to work his way up towards the top of the welterweight division pretty quickly. He, he's been on a pretty good roll recently, so for him to get knocked off by Lee Li, Li Liang, that, that hurts him a lot, but it definitely helps out Lee quite a bit. Uh, then the fight before that, we had Kai Kara France at Flyweight getting a win over Mark De La Rosa. Uh, unanimous decision, 30-27 on two cards, 29-28 on another. Uh, had another Chinese fighter winning in Song Kanan over Derek Krantz. And then we had a split decision between um, Wu Yanyan and Mizuki Inoue, and Inoue got the win there. Uh, so a loss there for the Chinese fighter. Then on the prelims, we had Anthony Hernandez catching an anaconda choke over Jun Young Park. Uh, Chinese fighter Su Maderji getting a dominant unanimous decision win over Andre Sukumtat. You had Da Eun Jung getting a win over Kadis Ibragimov uh, by a guillotine choke. That was Ibragimov's first loss as a professional fighter. Uh, Demir Ismagulov from Russia, who's now 19-2, getting a win by unanimous decision over Tiago Moises. Moises is pretty good, but this fight ended up being more of a stand-up fight than a grappling fight. Moises is known for his grappling. Um, and then we had... Heli Alateng getting a win over Dana Bajarel. And then the first fight on the card, a split decision win for Car Carol Rosa over Laura Procopio. And that was Procopio's first loss as a pro. Uh, so as far as stuff that's really going to impact their divisions right now, I don't know if that's really the case. I, I guess Li Zhang may find himself ranked after this. And obviously we have a new champion up at women's strawweight. Uh, but outside of that, it, it was more of a good showcase to show that there are a lot of fighters in China who are, who are doing well and both in making it to the UFC, but now getting some wins in the UFC, too. So that, that's pretty beneficial for the UFC. Uh, for the UFC, this is obviously their big breakout event in China. China's a market that they want to get into. They feel like there's a, a lot of business opportunity there. 
so for them to get a Chinese champion out of it is fantastic for them. Uh, for them to also get these other fighters doing well, that's also really big for them. And you'd have to think there's going to be a lot of people who are now in, in a culture that's already pretty positive towards martial arts are now going to have more interest in MMA, so that's good just in terms of growing a, a base of people who are going to compete in it. But then also people who are interested in it as well. There are sort of like these like trade war concerns with the U.S. and China, but I feel like those are more with physical products, whereas with the UFC would be selling to China would oftentimes just be broadcast rights, which are digital. They aren't things that you have, actually have to go through a physical port. And then um, they also have headquarters in China. They're creating that... Um, performance center out there as well so i i don't think that a lot of these trade concerns are really going to affect the ufc there and having an event like this it, it really looks like it's going to be an opportunity for them to grow in china i don't know that's going to blow up china to the point where china's like the new brazil or anything um but it's definitely not going to hurt and de- it should definitely make things a lot better than it already was so very big very big card for the ufc in terms of their international growth in china and they they have to be just thrilled with how this one particularly in the main and coming events um, but then that moves us towards next week's fight card that is going to be UFC 242. Khabib Nurmagomedov will be defending his title against Dustin Poirier. Uh, I was referencing a video I did before. that The video, what the point of that was, is that a lot of people, when they think of Khabib Nurmagomedov, the weakness they think of is his striking. And it is something that he's been working on and improving at, but obviously it's not quite at the same level as some of the other championship fighters at lightweight. But one of the things they don't really think about is that his ground game, though he's very good at taking people down, he's very good at passing guard and improving position, a lot of times he'll get to positions where... A highly a high level grappler, and by that oftentimes I'm referring to like a jujitsu guy, like a guy like a Damian Meyer or a Jacare Souza. If they get in those positions, the fight's over. Or you're just not getting out. Be that whether that's like a, a mount, back mount, uh, back mount with you flattened out, uh, mounted crucifix. Uh, could be able to get to those positions, but oftentimes he'll lose them. Uh, so that was one of the points I was making. I don't know that Justin Poirier, Poirier make it make it taken out, and he may get caught in those positions. He may be able to get out. I don't know that that means that later on in the fight he's going to, while he's still alive and kicking, that he's going to be able to then prevent Khabib from taking him down and make him pay for it. I think a guy who would make him pay for it more would be someone who's a tough wrestler who's who's tough to get in those positions in the first place. Someone maybe like a Tony Ferguson, a Gregor Gillespie, or even a Justin Gaethje. So I don't know that's going to be super relevant for this fight. Uh, but if Khabib does get by him and he does have to face one of those three guys and it looks like Ferguson will be the next guy, it is something to watch out for. Because if he does get Ferguson down and he's not able to put him away, especially a guy like Ferguson who's got a great gas tank, uh, it, it could be a problem for him. We've seen in his last couple fights, both with Connor and with Ally Quinta, that could be he, he puts on a hard pace, but then in the middle to late rounds, he'll have to take some time off just to kind of catch his breath and get back at it. That's part of the reason why why Connor was able to win the third round against him. Uh, that's part of the reason why he didn't take down Ally Quinta in the third or fourth rounds. So if he goes against a guy like Tony Ferguson, who's constantly going to keep a high pace, he's not able to finish him when he gets a good position in the early rounds. That could really cost him big time in the middle rounds of the fight and. Either that leads to him getting finished, or it just puts him in a really bad spot where he's really never able to take the time to catch his breath, and he just falls behind and loses the next three rounds. So it's something to watch for him. I, like I said, I don't know that's going to be an issue for this specific fight, but it, it is going to be something to see and something something that could be very interesting with him. Uh, the coming event is Edson Barboza versus Paul Felder. These guys have already fought. Paul Felder lost that fight. Uh, really tough matchup for Paul Felder. Barboza is just a better striker than him, and these guys generally are going to be on the feet striking. So while Felder's dangerous, he definitely has knockout power. You'd have to figure that is going to win this fight as well. Uh, the next fight on the card is one that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of attention, but really should be, because it is one of the most interesting matchups I've I've seen on a UFC card recently. It, it sort of reminds me of the Ben Askren versus Damian Maya matchup, in that you have a great wrestler versus a great jiu-jitsu guy. It is Islam Makachev versus Davi Hamosh. Davi Hamosh is an ADCC champion, uh, though he's more known for his, his top game, whereas Islam Makachev is a highly skilled wrestler. 
So you would figure that this fight is either going to be just a, a bit of an awkward striking match where they don't want to engage each other on the ground or where Dobby's unable to take it to the ground and Islam doesn't want to take it there. Um, or you get some really interesting exchanges on the ground. So that's definitely a fight that I'm going to want to see. Uh, then we have Shamil Abdurrahima versus Curtis Blades, a fight that could definitely mean a lot for the heavyweight division. Curtis Blades is always hovering on the t- hovering around the top five. If he gets a win here, he's cements himself as being one of those top five guys. If Shamil gets the win, then it does a lot for him. And then we have Diego Ferreira versus Maribek Tysimov, who has had some really rough luck in terms of getting international visas, and that's really stunned his career. But he's a guy who potentially, and, and again, I don't know how much he's been training and how much this layoff is going to hurt him, but he's a guy who I've been looking at for a while as a guy who could potentially be like a top five guy, if not a, a championship contender at lightweight, but because of his inability to get a visa and compete in a lot of cards, he really hasn't been able to show that. Uh, so this will be a real good, op- real good opportunity for him to showcase himself. I think he's on a five-fight finish streak in the UFC right now. So he's a guy who you definitely are going to want to tune into and definitely want to see him fight. Uh, even if he gets the win here, I don't know what, what that means for him because if he still has the same visa problems, I don't know how the UFC is going to go about getting him on bigger cards and actually getting him ranked opponents. But this will be an opportunity for him at least to, to showcase his skills and re- remind everyone how good he is. On the prelims, we have Joanne Calderwood versus Andrea Lee. Uh, really big fight at one at 125 for the women. Um, both of these girls are getting pretty close to that title shot talk. The winner here may be in line for a title shot, and if they're not, they're probably going to be one fight away from it. So this, in theory, could potentially be a title eliminator or a title semifinal. Uh, then we have Liana Logia versus Sarah Morris. Um, this fight really doesn't have a whole lot of... It, it, it just really isn't going to have a big effect on the division, I don't think. Uh, then we have Zubaira Tukugov, the guy in the red shirt who jumped in and punched Conor McGregor from behind. Um, he wasn't ever supposed to be back in the UFC, but Khabib stood his ground, and the UFC decided that they wanted to keep Khabib around because Khabib is obviously a very big star now. I had also brought up in that video that the two UFC free fights that were put up on YouTube with Khabib, one of them had 14.5 million views, the other one has 6.5 million views, which is significantly higher than what you get for most of those, so it seems as though there's a lot of interest in Khabib. I don't know if the start time here is going to hurt the pay-per-view sales, in a way, that's not really the UFC's problem because the ESPN Plus is already prepaid for all that. So if they sell a lot, great. If they don't, then it's not really going to hurt the UFC as much. But for ESPN, I think they would rather have this be in a primetime spot. But even if this card doesn't prove that Khabib is a superstar, um, the next card that he's on, especially if it's at a if, if it's during a primetime booking, um, I think it's really going to show. Um, but that point aside, that, that's why Zubair Tukagov was able to get back on because Khabib really stuck by him. He's 18-4. He'll be fighting Leroy Murphy, who is 8-0 making his debut. And then the first fight on the prelim card is going to be Atman Azaitar versus Tamu Pakalan. On the prelims, we have Bilal Muhammad versus versus Takashi Sato. We have Muslim Salikov versus Nordin Talib. Omari Akhmedov versus Zach Cummings. And then Don Mage versus Faris Zalam. Uh, so then on to the next topic, um, outside of the fights that are coming up next week. Uh, some of the news stories that came up this week, one of the big ones was Paige Van Zant talking about how she's on the last fight of her UFC deal and she wants to fight it out. This is the case that she's making. Yeah, but I, I do think that my value is significantly higher than what I am currently valued at. Yes. It's yes. like professional way to You want a pay raise. Out. I do want a okay. significant pay raise, to be completely honest. Yes, I appreciate um, that. And not transparent. Yeah, I do think that my value is really low. I look at, like, you know, it's, I think, okay, my manager said I do need to start talking Away. highly about myself and Talk standing away. up for myself yes. so yes. when you know when i fought michelle waterson yeah we had some of the highest views on fox in like years and years and years we set the record we blew everyone out and we had like amazing views when we were on fox and 
There you go, please. You're vibing right now. I don't want to interrupt. Okay. okay. So, uh, killed it on Fox. Killed it on Fox yes. with that. I feel like coming off of Dancing with the Stars, with the fan base I've been able to build up, doing my book tour, and I've just been extremely accomplished outside of outside of the UFC sure, as well sure. as in the UFC. And I see these other stars that cross over from other organizations. Um, take CM Punk. I, I don't think I am have the, quite the star. I don't know the star value CM Punk does. Just different industries, sure. a huge fan base where he comes from. But um, is he the football player? Greg Hardy. Greg Hardy, yes. him coming over from football, yeah. um, all these other stars and what the UFC values them at. And I'm not saying that they're devaluing me now because this is an extremely old contract. But I do know how much money I make compared in comparison to them. And I do want to show the UFC, like, I'm so much more than just a star outside of fighting. Like, I'm a star in the UFC as well. Like, yeah. I am really talented. I've been working hard. I've just had a string of unfortunate luck with my arm. And I think I need to, like, put in perspe- perspective all the things that I have done. You know, I've had um, five wins in the UFC, four finishes. Um, two arm bars, one knockout, and just an awesome record. I've been the main event twice, and I think someone with those accolades should be paid more. Yes. All right, so that was the um, the main point that she made there, and I, I think for that argument, it was actually a fair argument. What I like about what she did with that argument, she was referencing her ratings and talking about how the fight she had with Michelle Waters and Durable on Fox, because fighter pay, though people like to think it's based off how hard you work or like how much time you put into the game, in reality, fighter pay is more based around the UFC is going to pay you an amount that is less than what you will bring in. That way it's actually worth the investment for them. So if you bring in a ton of money, they can pay a higher number and still be able to make a profit. Whereas if you don't bring in any money at all, then they really can't pay that high of a number and still be able to be profitable off of it. So her point here is that I actually am bringing in a lot of money. I am bringing in a lot of eyes. Uh, so I am worth more money. And it's worth noting her last fight, she was making 43, 43, and then also five for the um, Reebok money. So making 43 and 43, being the star that she is, being someone who's drawing really good ratings, I actually think she does have a point here that she's not being paid enough. Now, one of the things is that during this interview, one of the next things that was brought up was how much she makes on Instagram, and I think people sort of conflated what she was saying there versus her first point. So her first point, just talking about how she was being paid um, fairly low relative to the ratings she pulls, I thought that was a fair point. I think people took this Instagram point that I'm about to play and thought that was supposed to mean, well, hey, if you make X amount of money on Instagram, then therefore you make you deserve to make X amount in the UFC. And they sort of like thought that she was arguing, if I make a lot on Instagram, therefore I'm worth a lot as a fighter, which these are two independent things. You can make a lot of money on Instagram, but if you don't pull any ratings, you're not worth a lot as a fighter. She did make an argument based on ratings. So I, I actually think her argument was fair here. But here's the Instagram thing that went around Twitter quite a bit. Like, I make way more money sitting at home Really? Posting pictures on Instagram that I do fighting. Really? With, my, with endorsement deals and wow. everything I pull in from social media, I I mean, I would actually be at a loss just taking a yeah. fight and focusing. Wow. If I were to stop everything I do outside of fighting and just fight, I would be at a loss. Really? Financially. Oh, by, a, by a yeah. long shot. So wow. it's just, you know, with TV endorsements, with all the things I do and um, coming off of Sports Illustrated, it's like, you know what, I, if I'm going to keep breaking my arm, if I'm going to keep bleeding and sacrificing for this sport, I feel like I think it's all fighters and all female fighters need to be recognized. And I was able to... Yeah, so, so that's the point that she was making there. But I think these are two separate points. Uh, that was more just her highlighting that she does make a good amount of money outside the UFC um, doing Instagram work. And it's fair to say, though, that a lot of that money that she's making is because of her work with the UFC. There are plenty of girls who are more attractive than her that don't make the money that she makes um, because they don't have the platforms that she has that's provided by the UFC. So even though the UFC doesn't directly pay her there, they definitely did have a direct impact on her getting that money. But even still, it's not as though the UFC shouldn't pay her what she's worth as, as a fighter just because they were able to help, help her make money outside of the cage. Uh, but that was the point there. Next topic to talk about with fighters getting paid is that Kung Lee had a lawsuit against the UFC, and that went to court. And in that court hearing, there was a lot of information that came out about how much the UFC pays their fighters. 
specifically was the percentage of gross revenue that fighters get. So people think about with a lot of the team sports, that's usually around 45 to 50% that's um, bargained for in the collective bargaining agreement. We found out in the UFC that it's fairly st- it's been holding steady for the past few years around 20%, and that's something that they plan to keep doing. So I've heard a lot of people saying, okay, well, if the NFL or the NBA is paying 50% and, and the UFC is paying 20%, that the fighters are just getting absolutely gypped here. I don't know that to be true, and I think that's actually an unfair point to make because you have to understand what all their costs are before you can even say they're being shipped. A- any business, they're, they're going to have to cover all their costs, and then you have to expect that they're going to make a little bit of profit on top of it, because that's really kind of the whole point in running a business is so you can actually can be profitable. So there's nothing wrong with making a profit. There can come a point where you're making like too significant of a profit, and you probably should be giving back a little bit more, but we don't know that to be the case at all here. Um, but as far as what we do know, if you're the UFC, fighter expenses are one of your work expenses, but you also have other expenses. So we're, we're talking about UFC 242, for example, this week. They're expensive in terms of travel that they'll do for every event. They're expensive in terms of how much money they're spending on promotions, whether that's advertisements, um, what they're spending on advertising companies who are creating the advertisements in the first place. So they have plenty of other costs that are employment related. Obviously, they have a corporate office in Las Vegas. They have a lot of different employees there, whether it's legal, marketing, uh, operations, all, all the other departments they have there. Like these all these people all have to be paid as well, so there's a lot of money being spent um, as a percentage of gross revenue in terms of employers. Um, you, you have your business costs, so we, we really don't know how profitable the UFC is, how much more they they reasonably could afford to pay the fighters, um, how much is fair, how much makes sense. It does seem like with a lot of the top fighters, they are starting to realize what they're worth, and they're they're definitely negotiating better and getting more money. Obviously, we've seen that a lot with Conor McGregor. Every time he fights, he's constantly renegotiating and making sure that the UFC pays him what he's what he's worth. Uh, so to me, the numbers that we got out of this hearing, they don't really indicate anything severely wrong that the UFC is doing. There are people like Luke Thomas who are trying to say, oh my God, how can you just say that the UFC only pays fighters 20% and think that's okay? You can't... I, I don't see how you can have a strong opinion on this either way because we don't know all the numbers. All we know is the percentage of revenue the fighters get. We don't know what their other costs are. So to say that there's something significantly wrong with the UFC paying 20% of fighters when we don't know what their other costs are, you're definitely jumping ahead and you you're speaking out of line. Um, if you're going to say that's too much, uh, I don't know that to be the case. I think we have indication that the UFC is at least profitable, which is what they should be. So I don't know that they're paying them too much in that regard. But to say that they're paying too little, there's, there's like some grave misconduct going on. We don't have any information that really leads us to believe that. And the fact that there are other promotions out there, promotions like Bellator, promotions like, like one that are bidding for other top fighters, uh, if the UFC is going to underpay their fighters significantly more, significantly, significant relative to what they're worth, uh, you figure they lose a lot of the top guys because other promotions still be able to pay them more, uh, still be able to get a strong return on them, and then be able to outcompete the UFC. And that's really not something that we've seen lately. We've seen a lot of companies try that and fail, whether that's Affliction or Strike Force. But to me, these hearings don't really do anything damning to the UFC. Uh, another topic to point out on that, though, as I was mentioning, Luke Thomas is that he had that monopsony, monopsony video um, that him and Eric Kerner put on, where they were trying to say that the UFC was a price-fixing monopsony, with the idea meaning that. The UFC sets the rates for labor wages in the fight promotion market that other companies follow and that they will pay fighters at the reservation price, or in other words, the, the smallest amount that the fighters are willing to take uh, in order to accept it. Now, I did a rebuttal video to that, and one of the main points I was saying there is that, no, that's not even close to the close to the fact. O- oftentimes, the fighters who are making the UFC debuts are getting paid a multiplier of four, four or even higher uh, relative, to, to, relative to what they were making before then. Uh, the UFC doesn't have to pay them that much. They do anyway. Um, if you look at some of the top fighters, 
they'll fight out their contracts, negotiate, look at other options out in the market, and still resign with the UFC. So obviously the UFC is still paying them a, a a better amount than what the other fighter or what the other um, companies are out in the market. So to me, I really just didn't agree with them at all. They answered this in the rebuttal video, but it, the answer wasn't even a good answer. He's like, okay, well, it's not always the case, but it's usually the case. And then he went on to say that, well, yeah, okay, fine, it's not the case with the lowest paid fighters, but the higher paid fighters, they are getting paid the reservation price. Well, first off, there were a lot more fighters on the card who were making closer to that 10 and 10, who were just like kind of being brought in new. Then there were fighters on the opposite end where they're just like the superstars who are moving all the pay-per-views. So if you're just saying it's like a small amount, and then you're saying that the fighters on the bottom end aren't actually being paid well above reservation wage, then you're sort of contradicting yourself there. But also, the fighters who are worth more, they're they're doing a good job lately of negotiating for more, and we can see the money that they're making in the UFC relative to what they're making in other promotions, that, yes, the UFC is definitely paying them better than the other promotions are, and if another promotion is willing to pay more, then that other promotion oftentimes will. And you look at someone like Roy McDonald or Ryan Bader or Gegard Mousasi, that was what happened. So to me, this rebuttal video didn't do anything to to shift the argument back in their favor. It just seemed like they were trying to make new arguments that were incoherent along the lines of what they had made in the first place. Uh, next topic to talk about from there, though, will be BJ Penn. A lot of people are calling for BJ Penn to be pulled off of the card against Nick Lentz. Don't know that that's the worst idea, but he got into a couple street fights. Uh, in one of the street fights, he got knocked out. Um, I don't know that he was not completely out conscious, but he was definitely knocked back. And had there had it been an MMA fight and had his opponent been able to continue on forward, a ref definitely would have jumped in and stopped it. Uh, just looked like he took an open hand slap. The video was kind of grating, so it's hard to tell if it was a fist or a slap. Looked, looked kind of like a slap, but either way, he was obviously drunk, so it's not as though he was like taking it at his at his best, where he was like most prepared for it. But even still, really bad luck for a former UFC champion to begin beat by some rando out in a bar like that. Uh, and then there was another footage of him getting in a fight. And it seems like he's been getting in a lot of these bar fights lately. And so so here's the thing with Ariel Helwani. Um, he is very good from a media standpoint in terms of talking to a lot of people and telling the stories. He never really took the time to actually learn the sport that well. He really didn't take the time to train it or kind of like learn it that much. So oftentimes when he starts making arguments that it sort of roll into the like what, what makes sense from a com- competition standpoint or a training standpoint or a sports standpoint o- oftentimes you have to take it with a grain of salt but one of his arguments with bj penn is that he said bj should retire he shouldn't have to fight again and one of the points that he brought up that i thought was actually a fairly interesting point is that he feels as though bj is at a point right now in his life where the reason why he's fighting is because everything else is going sideways he, he's probably got some substance abuse problems um he was referencing a time where he saw bj penn at a party and bj seemed to be very um intoxicated i would say so he was saying hey look just because this is maybe helping you stay out of trouble there are bigger problems at hand here like like the solution isn't to keep fighting if you're having these alcohol problems the solution is just to go to AA or go where you have to go to to get help and and to that point i I think he's right bj's definitely got some issues going on in his life right now you'd have to figure that when he fights nick lentz he's not gonna be anywhere near his best uh lentz is probably gonna win that fight and I think what's best for BJ's life right now, rather than him going in there, getting a paycheck, likely taking another loss, uh, it'd be best for him to identify what sort of substances he's having the biggest problems with and go about getting that taken care of. And whether that means going to AA or going to another um, rehab facility, I, I think that's really where BJ Penn needs to be going right now. It's not to the Octagon. It's it's going to be to a rehab facility. So I, I think after this, uh, I, I was sort of... I'm trying. I, I would say I was. I, I was definitely believing of Errol Hawani's sentiment in that BJ needs to go to rehab and BJ needs to get his um, alcohol issues taken care of. But 
I think this was kind of the cherry on top here, and I really think BJ needs to just step away from the fight game now, if not forever, and then really get things handled from a personal standpoint because fighting in the octagon isn't going to be your, your fix here. It, it might be able to hold you over for a little while, but he really needs to go to rehab, and he really needs to get the substance abuse problem taken care of. Uh, next thing to talk about is a couple fights that were announced. We have Darren Till versus Kelvin Gaslam at 185. This is not a very easy fight for Darren Till, but it's one of those fights that goes both ways. So I think beforehand, a lot of people are looking at this fight and we're thinking, okay, Kelvin Gaslam's going to get the win here. And assuming that he does, then okay, well then Darren Till's 0-3. He's lost his last three fights. Uh, Maven loses his last three fights by finish. Where do you go from there? He was obviously a big star just a year ago, uh, selling out in Liverpool. Why would we burn that star out? On the other end, though, if he does get the win, getting that win over Kelvin Gaslam at middleweight would push him up into the title picture pretty quickly. Do we know if he's ready for it? I don't know. A lot of people are talking about how Darren Till got pushed a little bit too fast. I don't know whether or not that's a fair fair statement. He, he got the fight with Donald Cerrone. He dominated Donald Cerrone. That's not worth nothing. That's an impressive thing to do. Uh, then got a fight with Stephen Thompson at a time when Wonder Boy was just neck and neck with the champion Tyron Woodley. And had, I don't know that I would say a dominant win, but he, he, he had a good good fight against Thompson, dropped him, was able to get the win there. It looked about as good as Woodley did at the time. So for him to go from that performance against Thompson into getting a fight with Woodley, I think that was actually relatively fair for him to get that opportunity. Granted, that fight with Woodley didn't go well. Uh, and the fight with Masvidal didn't go well, and now he's moving up to fight to face Gastelum. Uh, but for him, if he does get the win, that's going to be big for him. Do I think he's going to get the win? Um, I, I don't know that I see Gastelum trying to take him down so much here, so I think this probably would be a stand-up fight. And If you look at their length, it, it would definitely be good for Darren Till to have a stand-up fight with a guy like Kelvin. Now, granted, Kelvin hits extremely hard, and Darren got dropped in his last two fights, so that's not maybe not great for him. Now, granted, he's also been cutting a lot of weight, so maybe that played a factor into his factor into it as well. So him being up a weight class may help him with that. Um, one of the things that really stuck out to me, though, with Kelvin in his last fight with Israel Adesanya was how he was able to manage the distance with a much longer fighter and be able to find his shots over and over against someone who's as defensively skilled as Israel Adesanya. And seeing that fight, it makes it harder for me to believe that Darren Till is going to be very effective at keeping range and not getting clipped. Um, but at the same token, this is going to be southpaw versus southpaw rather than southpaw versus uh, orthodox. So to that end, maybe that helps out Darren Till. Uh, it's not as though he's going to have to worry about a big straight right that's going to be coming to him as a southpaw. But either way... the to me, it's going to be a good fight. I don't think it was. I don't think it's as bad of a booking as a lot of people are making out to be. I think a lot of people feel like this is suicide for Darren Till. Till definitely has a path to victory here, but it's not going to be an easy fight for him. And with that being said, definitely going to be a fight worth watching. And can't wait to see how Till comes back after two two rough losses. But also, Kelvin Gastelum was just in a war, so it'll be interesting to see how he comes back from from that fight as well. The other big fight is Carlos Condit versus Mickey Gall. For some reason, I'm seeing a lot of people online say, oh, I hate this because I think it means Carlos Condit is going to lose to Mickey Gall. To me, Mickey Gall is one of the most severely overrated fighters in the UFC right now. He's a guy who was brought in to fight CM Punk, and that was kind of a stupid move in the first place because CM Punk considered himself to be a jiu-jitsu stylist who was a white belt at the time, whereas Mickey Gall was a brown belt at the time, so it didn't really make a whole lot of sense for them to make that fight unless they just wanted CM Punk to get dusted, but which he did. But then at that point, where does Mickey Gall go from there? Now, granted, he's had a few wins outside of... Um, the scrubs like a Michael Johnson or a CM Punk, or not Michael Johnson, um, Michael Jackson. So, so he's had those wins, but then all, he, he did beat uh, Sage Northcutt, uh, did beat, I think it was Salim Tuhari was the last guy he fought. Uh, hopefully I'm not wrong about that one. But it's not as though he's looked very good. Uh, one of the things I talked about after his last win is that his jiu-jitsu, it, it's good. He's at a black belt level, 
But there are plenty of other people who are at a black belt level in the UFC welterweight division, Carlos Condon included. Uh, but then his wrestling is not very good. Um, his striking, there are a lot of openings in there. So to me, seeing how this fight goes, even if it goes to the ground, though Gall would be in a decent spot there, it's not as though I would see him dominating Carlos Condon necessarily in the striking range. Even though Condon doesn't look like himself anymore, I'd, I'd still think that 50% Condon or whatever we have of Condon right now is still plenty enough to to dominate Mickey Gall. And then in the wrestling, I, I just don't see Gall's wrestling being at to a point where he's going to be able to just take Condon down when he needs to. So to me, this looks like a fight that Carlos Condon's probably going to win and it's about as easy a fight as you could really give Carlos Condon in the UFC right now. Like, I don't know what kind of a matchup you can give Carlos Condon that's really any more winnable than that. So, to me, it's good for Mickey Gall in that he gets a big name. It's good for Carlos Condon in that he gets a guy who's probably not going to hurt him too bad and a guy who he's likely going to be able to get a win against. Uh, but this idea that Mickey Gall is just going to run through Carlos Condon is going to look terrible for Condon. I, I don't see that at all. I'd love to see how the betting line goes out on this if it's cl- as close as people are making it seem. Uh, I'm probably going to put a good amount of money on Carlos Condit, even though he doesn't look like the same Carlos Condit we're used to seeing. I just don't like this matchup at all for Mickey Gall. Uh, next thing to talk about from there, though, we have Anthony Rumble Johnson. Though he doesn't have a fight booked right now, he is going to be returning, and he'll be returning in March 2020. The plan is for him to return at heavyweight, which is very interesting because that division is very thin. A guy who seems to be similar to him would be Francis Ngannou in that they're both extremely dangerous power punchers, difference being that Ngannou is primarily known for his punches, whereas Rumble has his good punches, but he's also got a very good wrestling background. He can also kick. Um, So I think from a technical standpoint, there's an argument to me that Anthony Johnson is better than Francis Ngannou. Um, From a power standpoint, I think Ngannou is probably a little bit stronger, but it's not as though there's a major difference there. So to me, it's almost like the the heavyweight division is going to be getting at Francis Ngannou just jumping in. We're probably not going to have Daniel Cormier by the time he comes in. Cormier's probably just got one fight left, and that's going to be a rematch with Stipe. So at that point, there's an argument that I, I guess Stipe might be a tough matchup for for Anthony Johnson. Again, maybe he might not be, though. If you look at Stipe compared to Ryan Bader, Ryan Bader lost and lost pretty cleanly to Anthony Johnson. He wasn't able to take Rumble down. Rumble was able, was able to stuff the takedown and just pound him out. Uh, so you'd wonder how Stipe would be able to match up or what Stipe would be able to do that Bader wasn't able to do. So there, there is a chance that, depending on the matchups that he gets, that Rumble could potentially get a title fight pretty quickly and maybe even win the title up at heavyweight, especially if you look at the layout of that division. So to me, this isn't just a story of a, a guy who retired coming back. This is a story of a guy coming into a division that's very soft and a division that he could potentially shake up really quickly and even earn his way to a title fight and even earn that title depending on who's the champion at the time that he earns the title shot uh, in relatively short order. So it, it's actually pretty big news. Um, speaking of Daniel Cormier, though, after his father had passed away, John Jones, who doesn't have a great relationship with him at all, set a, or sent out a really nice tweet. So Daniel Cormier, after he had lost his father, um, just put out a tweet saying, I love you, Dad. Rest in peace. Uh, I believe technically this is a stepfather, not his uh, biological father, but it is effectively his father figure, out, father figure throughout his life. Um, but Jones sent out a tweet saying, I'll be facade. I'm really sorry to hear about your loss, D.C., Know that he's in heaven with the opportunity to watch you front row and center for the rest of your life. Continue living life that makes him proud. Thoughts go out to you and your family today. And that was a really nice thing for John Jones to say. It's also worth noting that when John Jones's mom passed away, that DC sent out a similar message to John Jones, just being very supportive. So it's nice that even though these guys don't like each other very much, that when personal tragedy comes around, they're, they're still decent enough humans to, to be nice to each other. So I thought that was something that was worth pointing out. Uh, not that there's a whole lot to really build off of it. It's just something that's nice to see, so I wanted to point that out. And the last thing to talk about is Forrest Molinari. 
who is the UFC or the USA um, wrestling world team member at 65 kilograms. Uh, 65 kilograms translates to 143 pounds. And that's worth noting with wrestling. Oftentimes they're weighing in and then competing right after. So if you're if you're wrestling at 143 pounds, that could potentially mean that if you get a day of or if you get an extra day to weigh in, like you do in MMA, they could probably cut the extra eight pounds and still make it to 135 pounds. So it's not clear whether she would be a 135er or a 145er. It'd be nicer if she could make 135 just because that's a deeper division and there really isn't a whole lot going at 145 right now. Uh, but she is expressing some interest in MMA. So here is the part in her interview where she mentions that. So that's Forrest Molinari. She will be going for the World um, Championships in wrestling. I think right now she's the number two seed at Worlds. Uh, obviously made the world team or made the world team for the U.S. So she's the number one wrestler in the U.S. at 65 kilograms. Uh, she's also won the Pan American Championships back in 2018. Believe she won Yasser Dogu this year, which is a really big rankings tournament uh, that got her that number two seed. So you look at Tatiana Suarez, who's probably the the most well known wrestler in women's MMA right now. Uh, I guess Sarah McMahon would be the other one who was a silver medalist. Um, but, but Suarez is someone who's really making a lot of moves at 115 right now. Uh, we don't have a lot of great wrestlers from the women's side who are coming in, and it sounds as though Forrest Molinari is actually interested in coming in. Now, she did mention that she's looking at 2024 as when she would do it, so that could mean we still are five years away from this. Um, but sometimes with these wrestlers, they say that, that far in advance, but then in between Olympic cycles, they might take some more time, train, and 
want to jump in and jump in a little bit sooner. So we'll see if that's the case with her. Right now she's 23 years old. Uh, after 2024, she'd be 28. Uh, so wouldn't be too late for her to step in at that point. Uh, one of the things worth mentioning with her training is that she is in Iowa City, Iowa right now. She's training at the Hawkeye Wrestling Club. And there is a jiu-jitsu school out there called Citadel where she has actually taught some wrestling classes. Um, that school is run by a couple of black belts, both Jim Kelly, who is a black belt from BJJ United, and then Matt Layden, who's a tag team black belt and a very good competitor in his own right. He's beaten guys like Tex Johnson, um, had an armbar win over Dante Leon. So she, she's got some great resources there for her if she does want to start getting into at least the jiu-jitsu side of it. Obviously, her wrestling is elite. Uh, so for her, if, if she does want to make that transition and wants to make it soon, she could really work her way up the rankings pretty quickly. And with the divisions not being as full of talent in the women's as they are in the men's, uh, once she decides that she really wants to pursue MMA, uh, she can go pretty far and she can go pretty far pretty fast. So that's definitely going to be a name to watch out for. Uh, but that'll cover it for this week. Uh, that covers all of our topics. Just a reminder is you can watch my videos on YouTube and BitChute. Um, so I'll have the full podcast there, but then also have other videos that come out throughout a week, throughout the week. So that includes that Khabib Nuragamayda video I was talking about where I'm breaking down some of his technique. Um, also have podcasts, so, or have this podcast, so you can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can also find it, um, on Anchor, which has links to Google. Uh, it has links to Spotify and a bunch of other podcast apps through there. Uh, and then if you want to follow me on Twitter, go ahead and follow me at the underscore MMA underscore rundown. Uh, so that covers it for this week. Uh, can't wait for UFC 242. I'm sure I'll plenty to talk about or I'll plenty to talk about after that and have a great week.